0: So John chapter 3, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So tonight I've entitled this teaching, Non-Perishable. Now we all know what that means because we know what perishable items are, those things that we put in our fridge And just before we get to pour it in a glass, we look at the date. Oh, no, it's not going to work. It's out of date. It's a week out of date, so it's chunky by now. You know, can't use that. (laughs) But non-perishable means that it's going to last a long time. Not necessarily forever when it comes to food, but you're going to see what we're talking about tonight and what we're looking at is truly non-perishable. Non-perishable. So verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Well, what things? Well, it's the things that we looked at last week. We were talking about someone who's being born again, that statement that Jesus used. And also he talked about the wind and how the wind represents the Holy Spirit. So he was trying to explain to Nicodemus what would be required for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus didn't understand. He said, how can these things be? We remember Nicodemus even asked, how, how can a man enter a, uh, his mother's womb again? He was totally confused. But we can understand, can't we? Because as we talked last week, without the Holy Spirit in our lives, working in our lives, we don't understand, do we? We lack understanding. So Nicodemus asks this last question that we have in this text. And now Jesus, as we see, uh, he's doing the rest of the talking. He'll carry on uh, through verse 21 trying to further explain to Nicodemus what's going on here. So in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? It is interesting. It's a good question that Jesus has for Nicodemus because some of the things that Jesus said to Nicodemus should have triggered something in in his mind. Uh, When Jesus used the wind as a symbol in verse 8, Nicodemus should have remembered what was written in Ezekiel 37. The prophet writes of him seeing a valley full of dead bones. And God told him to do these next things. He said, prophesy to the wind, which is God's word. And then the spirit came and gave the bones life. Life came to the bones because of a combination of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And we know that to be true in our lives, don't we? It takes those two things working in us and through us for us to grow in our walk with the Lord and grow closer to the Lord. So Nicodemus and the religious leaders were focused on the law, God's Word, but they were, they were void of the Spirit, which they desperately needed. The Spirit hadn't been given yet. We have uh, in the Old Testament uh, texts available to us that talk about God's Spirit coming upon certain individuals, but God's Holy Spirit hadn't come in any of those individuals as of yet. So the Holy Spirit is something that they desperately needed for understanding. Uh, A saying that I heard some years ago that as we look for this balance of the Spirit and, and the Word, is all word and you puff up, all spirit you blow up, just enough of both you grow up. So all word you puff up. Knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? All spirit, if you're just all about the spirit and you're not grounded in God's word, you can blow up. (laughs) But just enough of both, a balance of uh, the word of God and the spirit of God, you grow up in him. Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Jesus says we speak what we know, we testify of what we've seen, but yet you still don't receive our witness. You see the religious leaders in that day had a problem with authority. They did believe in the authority of God. They did believe in the authority of Moses, they believed in the authority of the law, but they're not believing in the authority of Jesus at this time. And, you know, the same can be said of us today. We can speak what we know, and we can testify what we've seen, and yet there's still going to be those that just don't receive, right? Verse 12 tells us that, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus is trying, has been trying to explain these things to Nicodemus in a way that he would understand using uh, earthly examples for him, but he still didn't understand. But he says, how can you possibly believe heavenly things if you can't believe the earthly things? We know that we've looked at so far in the book of John that Jesus is God, Jesus is the creator. So I think that he can speak with authority on earthly things since he created them. And he can speak with authority on heavenly things since he's the son of God. But Nicodemus didn't even understand the earthly. How could he possibly understand the heavenly things? But Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I want you to understand this. Get this if you get nothing else, Nicodemus. Everything that you know from the law, everything that you hold as truth, everything that you teach... As the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, all of it, all of it points to me, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. Then he goes on further to say, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, I am from heaven. Did you not get that, Nicodemus? Do you not remember Proverbs 30? Verse 4 says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. What is his name or his son's name? So far in our study of John, we see that Jesus has referred to himself as the son of man in John uh, 1.51, the Son of God in John 2.16. And then we see others like John the Baptist referred to him as the Messiah and the Son of God. So surely Nicodemus has heard of some of these testimonies by now. Uh, Word gets back quickly to the religious leaders, we know. Uh, You know, a lot of yapping going on back then because the religious leaders didn't... uh, they didn't see Jesus' authority, but they saw him doing all of these signs and his teachings. And word got back to them. And yet they had in their minds, it they they was just blocked. They just couldn't see him for who, who he was. So uh, even though some of the other disciples might have been sharing testimony to Nicodemus or to someone that Nicodemus knows, they just weren't recognizing that testimony that this was the Son of God, this was the Son of Man, This was the Messiah. But I find it interesting in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus that Nicodemus doesn't ask straight out, Are you the Messiah? That seems like it would be an obvious question, doesn't it? Because that's the talk, that's what's going on, so why wouldn't you ask him right up front, Are you the Messiah? But we also see that Jesus doesn't say, I am the Messiah either, does he? That's not there. Why? I have no idea. But, <laughs> but they don't. Nicodemus doesn't ask and Jesus doesn't say, I am the Messiah. But he does refer to himself as the Son of Man. And he continues with that in the next verse, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So in Numbers 21, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God sent this plague of snakes to punish the people for their rebellion. Now those who were doomed to die after the snake bites uh, could be cured by obeying God's command to look up at this elevated bronze serpent on a pole and if they believed that God would heal him, uh, he would. So they're bitten by these snakes and God commands them to look upon this bronze serpent up on a pole and they would, and believe that God would heal them and they would be healed. It should sound very familiar to us because Jesus was up on a cross and we look at him in the same way. In order to be healed from the bite of sin, we have to look upon Jesus on, his cro- on the cross and the price that was paid for each one of us. Believing that he died on the cross for our sins. So God provides a way out from our sin. Why? Why does God do that? We hear it all the time. And we wonder, why, why would God do that? Why, why did God want to save someone like me? Have you guys ever asked yourself that? I know I, I have, a lot. I, God is beyond me. Well, verse 16 is a verse that gives us the answer to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see where the non-perishable thing's coming in now? Of all the verses in the Bible that confirm the love that God has for us, probably one of the most well-known and most quoted verses in the Bible is this verse right here, John 3.16. You even see it at sporting events, right? With the guy with the Multicolored Afro, you know, standing in the background, uh, holding up that sign, John 3:16 or 3:16. And those of us that know the Lord have relationship with the Lord, we know what that means. Well we're going to take a little time tonight and park on this verse because I believe this verse is so important for us to understand. And if we can handle this verse correctly, any one of us, we can use this verse as an opportunity to share the gospel with someone else. So, the Greek word used for love here in this case is agape love. You're probably familiar with that. It means selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. Agape love. It's the kind of love that really only God can give, right? We just quite don't hit the mark when it comes to trying to achieve agape love. There's things in our flesh that get in the way of us accomplishing that. But what I want for us to do this evening is we're going to take a look at this verse actually backwards because the end result of what's being said is what we're most interested in. Based on this verse, if the goal is to have or to obtain everlasting life, then what are the steps to get there? If the goal is to have everlasting life, what are the steps necessary to get to that? And they're contained in this verse. What do we learn about God and His love in this offering of everlasting or eternal life? So if you're a note taker, here's four things for your consideration to look at this evening. Number one, God's motivation. First part of that verse, for God so loved the world. Now Webster's defines motivation as the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way or the general desire or willingness of someone to do something motivation we're all motivated by something Uh, in our world today there's a lot of people that are motivated by money now we all know money is required in our society uh, just for needs let alone the whole list of wants that we all have so one can be motivated by money. One could be motivated by fame, just to be well known. Um, <laughs> I was joking this week with a friend of mine and telling him that, you know, when we started the church back in October, we didn't have any uh, dreams of it becoming this great big mega church, you know. And so far it's worked out just according to plan, you know. I mean, it's, that's the way it's been. But I could have been motivated to uh, see a church of thousands. And if, that's, if God's working in that and people are getting saved and God grows it to a thousand, praise God, He's doing the work, not me. So God's motivation to offer us eternal life is based on His love for us. He offers us everlasting life because He loves us. So also in that verse, who does he offer it to? Who is it available to? The world. For God so loved the world. The world. All it is available to everyone. God is the initiator of the love. God's love can't be earned or deserved. God's love can only be received. That's it. God is motivated to offer everlasting life or eternal life to us because of his love for us. Not us globally. Community-wide, Individually, think about it that way. Because, uh, you know, many times when we're trying to explain something, we use we or us. And that's true. God is offering it to the whole world. But bring it down to an individual level. He's offering it to each one of us. Loves us by name. He knows us, each one of us. So he gives us his law first in the Old Testament. And he shows us we can't keep it. So we see our need for a way out, don't we? Which God provides out of His love for us through Jesus Christ. So God so loved the world, number two, that He gave His only begotten Son. So we have motivation, and now we have propitiation. That He gave His only begotten Son. Webster's defines propitiation as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, a God-approved sacrifice. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we couldn't achieve God's righteous standard, His law, on our own. So because of His love... He provided an atoning, perfect sacrifice for us. He provided a way out. Romans 5.8 said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing thing when you look at it that someone's willing to die for somebody else. And, you know, I like to say, I, I believe I would when it came to my wife or my kids anybody in our family, that I would die for them. I would put my life down for them because I love them. And I know they love me. But imagine a scenario where people don't love you back and you're still going to lay your life down for them? Oh, I think not. You know, I mean, why would I want to do that? There's nothing in it for me to die for someone else that doesn't even care for me. They don't love me. Why would I do that? But this is exactly what God did for us while we were yet sinners christ died for us so jesus is the propitiation for our sins 1 john 2:2 uh, 2, 2 says he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for all the world he gave his son you remember that same picture in genesis 22 Someone else was to give his only begotten son. Remember the story of Abraham? And in that story we can see the parallel between the ram that was offered on the altar as a substitute for Isaac and Christ offered on the cross as a substitute for us. So God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. But God did sacrifice his own son, Jesus Christ. And really, if you think about it, if you ponder this, if Jesus had lived, if Jesus had not gone to the cross, all of mankind would have died in a sinful state, right? However, God sent his son to die for us so that we can be spared from the eternal death we deserve, and instead, we can receive eternal life. For God's love for us was his motivation to provide for us a perfect propitiation for us. His motivation to provide for us a perfect propitiation for our sins. He loved us with such a great love that he was willing to give us his Son as a sacrifice for each one of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Number three, God's salvation. Motivation, propitiation, salvation. That whoever believes in him should not perish, not perish, not be perishable. Salvation is defined as preservation or deliverance from destruction, difficulty, or evil. Deliverance from the power or penalty of sin, redemption. Believing in him and what he has done for us. Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Open to everyone, open to the whole world. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God provides, and we accept. God's the initiator. He loved us first. He says, I'm offering my free gift of salvation to you. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is respond to it. You know, we use many different terms about how it is that we came to the Lord. We'll say, uh, I chose to come to the Lord. um, Or I gave my heart over to the Lord. All of which are true. I think most of us know what we're trying to say when we say that. But I think one of the best ones to look at is God gave his love to me and I responded to it. God was the initiator. He poured out his love on me and offered eternal life. And that love that he poured out, I responded to it. Yeah, there was a choice involved, but I did respond You see, the gospel message is just very simple. God is not the author of confusion. And even though there are places in the Old Testament especially, Lamentations, some of those, that can get very confusing, when it comes to God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the last thing he wants it to be is confusing. So we're sinners because we couldn't keep the law. We needed someone to save us from our sinful state. God sent the perfect sacrifice to die for our sin. We confess our sinful state and accept the Savior's sacrifice. And then we are granted everlasting life by God's love through Christ. That whoever believes in him should not perish. So believing in him and knowing that since we believe in him, we will not perish. We will not perish. We come to faith in Jesus, we're non-perishable. We have a promise that we will never perish. Well, the difference between perishing and living and condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Number four, God's justification. Motivation propitiation salvation and now justification justification is the act or the process or state of being justified in this case uh, by God justified you've probably heard it said just as if I'd never sinned first john chapter 3 says and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has life he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God... ...that you may know that you have eternal life... ...and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. God doesn't want there to be any gray area on that, does He? He wants us to know for a fact that if we've confessed Him... ...that we believe in Him, that we can have that confidence, that assurance that we may know we have eternal life. He doesn't want there to be any confusion about that. Also in 1 John chapter 2 it says, And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Now what do we know about God's promises? (laughs) You can count on them, can't you? If God has a covenant with his people, if God has a promise to his people, he will see it through. Period. He's not going to go back on his promise. He's not going to go back on a covenant that he's made. You can trust in that. You can have assurance in that. So he's saying in these verses, we can have assurance that we have eternal life. Now, not only is this love offered freely, but to those who believe it leads to everlasting life. God doesn't break his promises. He says in Romans eight thirty-five, nothing can separate us From the love of God. Now what's included in nothing? It's fascinating. You know what the Greek word for nothing is? The definition? Nothing. No no thing can separate us from the love of God. Believing in him, we belong to him and nothing can separate that. So it all starts with God's love as we've seen. God's love is unconditional. You've probably heard that phrase before unconditional love it means there is no condition stipulation or requirement that we must meet in order for God to love us in fact we can't can we there's really nothing we can do that would put us in a place where we're deserving of God's love no matter how good a person you think you are no how, no matter how good a week you've had you know wow I only messed up once all week man sorry it's one too many God's love is unconditional. For God so loved the world. He was the initiator, wasn't he? And it wasn't a, a, a fact of God loving some and not loving others. It says that he loved the world. John 3.16, again, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He started out loving us. He was the initiator. In this verse, catch this, if you catch nothing else, God's love is not based on whoever believes. Everlasting life is based on whoever believes. For God so loved the world. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Even in our sinful state, He still loved us. So eternal life is based on whoever believes that. It's not based on, certainly it's God's love extended to us, but God's love is not based on whoever believes. He loves us all. Everlasting life is based on whoever believes. So God's love is there whether we believe it or not. It's, it's unconditional. And whoever believes has everlasting life, has eternal life, live with God uh, forever. So if someone were to ask you, let's just take a scenario. They may or they may not. In 25 words or less, communicate to me God's plan for redemption the gospel message the hope of salvation in 25 words or less how could you do that? well if you count the number of words in John 3.16 it's 25 words there's a way to share the gospel to share God's plan for redemption to share the gospel message the hope of salvation is all contained in that one verse it's probably worth I don't know, it sounds like a crazy idea, I'm sure. Maybe even memorizing it. That that would be something, right? How many of you here think that your kids probably have that verse memorized? Yeah. And we when we get older, I know we get forgetful. You know, maybe we don't hang on to those things. Maybe like we should, but twenty-five words. We could probably remember this one if we, uh, you know, set set our hearts on memorizing it. But in this verse, we see we see God's heart. God loved the world. In this verse, we see God's plan. He gave His only begotten Son. And in this verse, we see God's will that we would believe, that we would not perish, that we would have everlasting life. So we see God's heart. He loved the world. We see God's plan. He gave his only begotten Son. And we see God's will, that we would believe, that we would not perish, and that we would have everlasting life. Let's read that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice which word is directly in the middle of this verse. This is really interesting. I didn't catch this till this week, but it's sun. Sun is the word that's right in the middle, right in the center of this verse. And just as the sun is central in this verse... He should be central in our lives as well, shouldn't he? Verse 17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm going to read that verse again because I know every one of you are out there counting words right now. <laughs> You're trying to test me on this, aren't you? <laughs> it's correct might depend on what translation you have too. But the New King James Version, son is in the middle. Verse 17 again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So we have another shun word to look at here. We had motivation. Propitiation, salvation, and justification. Now we have condemnation. Webster's defines that as to say in a strong and definite way that someone or something is bad or wrong. And it follows normally with someone getting a usually severe punishment. So remember, in our previous studies, we've talked about the only two types of people there are in the world. Saved and not saved, right? That's the only two people groups. No matter how you cut it, that's all there are. So as we continue in our text, Jesus on, goes on to tell us about this condemnation. Verse 19, it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, Has not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So we have this thing that Jesus has been talking about in verses 17 and 18 and now 19 about condemnation. Condemnation. And it appears as though there's a state that a person can be in where they could be condemned. And we know that to be from God's word that that would be a person that's in a sinful state that haven't turned their lives over to the Lord. So they are condemned at that point. Now they don't have to stay that way, right? All of us were in that state at one time where we didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And at that point in our lives, we were condemned. But now that we know the Lord, we're not. And so now he's given us some qualities in verses 20 and 21 that would Distinguish between someone who is condemned and someone who is not. So we have some contrasts here in verses 20 and 21. Darkness and light. Evil and good. Hate and love. Hidden and exposed. So by these verses there is a condition for condemnation. And there is also a condition for no condemnation. A condition for condemnation and a condition for no condemnation. Again, we had darkness and light. We had evil and good. We had hate and love hidden and exposed. So what are the conditions for condemnation? Let's look at it first. Those who love the darkness and hate the light. It says it there. Those who practice evil and not good. Those who hate and not love. So just in those Three phrases, we have a measuring stick available to us, don't we? Where you could actually measure, well, how do I measure up to these things? Do I love darkness more than I do light? Uh, Do I practice evil more than I do good? Do I hate and not love? Those could be conditions in your life for condemnation. Now, all of us struggle with that at times. We're not sinless, are we? We still have a capacity to stand because of the flesh that dwells in us, we can still mess up. We can be driving down I-25 and for a moment hate that person that just cut us off in traffic. It happens. We're certainly not expressing love towards them in that scenario, are we? So we have these conditions for condemnation. Now, what are the conditions for no condemnation? Well, just the opposite. Those who love the light and hate darkness, those who practice good and not evil, and those who love and do not hate. Our mission statement again here at Calvary Birth It is, love God and love others. God wants us to be in a state where we're expressing our love to Him all the time. He wants to know that we're returning the love that He gives us. And He also wants us to prove that by extending our love to others. So if we're focused on that, if we're focused on love, you know, the others just kind of dissipate, don't they? Just kind of go away because we're in the right frame of heart and mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, it says. So also we see that those in the condemned category do not want their deeds exposed. You ever uh, live in a house that maybe has some roaches. How many of you ever done that, lived in a old... Oh, we don't like to do that now, but all of us has probably had a time in our lives when we lived in a house that had roaches. I know there's a couple here tonight that originally lived in Florida, and I don't know what those bugs are down there, but they, they, you know they, they move chairs around. They're huge. But you know how that goes? When it's dark, they're all over the place. As soon as you flip on the light, Man, they run for cover, don't they? Their deeds are being exposed. Whatever those dirty deeds those bugs are doing, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, those that are in the not condemned category, their deeds are clearly seen. And they don't mind because they're, they're doing good. They're pouring out the love of God in someone else's life. They're doing good deeds. So they don't mind them being seen. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 23 says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Well, that verse very clearly tells us that we can't hide from God, can we? There's no place that we can go and escape God seeing us where we are, God's view upon us. But those that are in darkness are deceived thinking that they can hide from the Lord, that they can hide their deeds from the Lord. And those in the not condemned category, they know that it's impossible to hide from God. We know that, don't we? You know, it's bad enough when your kid gets caught with his hand in a cookie jar. We all know that phrase. But then they lie about it when they got chocolate all over their face. You know, it's apparent. Did you get a cookie? No. (laughs) You know, they got chocolate caked all over them. No, I I didn't. They blame it on their brother or their sister. (laughs) When we're doing a known wrong, when we're trying to hide it, lying about it when we get caught, we've got an example of a couple that tried to do that. Back early on in Scripture, Adam and Eve, they tried that. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, where are you? Now, God didn't lose Adam and Eve. It wasn't like he didn't know where they were. And it was kind of goofy that they thought they could hide behind, you know, a tree. Uh, We have a daughter who will go nameless that used to. (laughs) She would hide. And you would say, is she behind the chair? And you would hear, no. (laughs) No. So you can't hide from God. Adam and Eve tried that. It it just didn't work. But when God said, where are you? He he knew where they were. He was asking about their heart. You know, Adam, where are you in me? Adam, all the things that I've shown you and taught you, I'm asking you, Adam, where are you? And I think each one of us can relate to that because we're in that state sometimes Sometimes we feel far from God, don't we? We've been involved in something or we're just going through a tough time and we have kind of removed ourselves from God. God is still there, but God would say, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where we are. He knows exactly where we are. But he asks the question because he wants us to draw close to him, to come back to him, to get our focus back upon him. It's a heart question. Where are you? They messed up. They couldn't hide. And we know that there were consequences to their actions. I, boy, do we know that. They started this whole sin state thing, right? Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. Way to go. But you know what? If, if they hadn't done it, <laughs> somebody else would have. Uh, you know, we just would have. You know, God was saying, don't touch that. It's just like the little kid, something's hot, don't touch it. What do they do? They're going to touch it, right? Or don't look at that. We know our human nature. We're just we attracted to that. I mean, if you don't believe that, stand in front of a crowd of people and just look up. What's going to happen? Someone eventually is going to walk up and look up. Probably a number of people are going to look up. And if you tell somebody don't go there or don't look at that, what are they going to do? They're going to look at it or they're going to go there. We have this propensity to sin. It's built in us. So Adam and Eve, they were now in a condition for condemnation, weren't they? Condemnation. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 7 and 8. Romans chapter 7 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because I think Paul is really capturing exactly how I feel sometimes. You know, we've all been there. I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. I don't know why I don't do it, but I still do it. But I don't know why I don't do it. And he just talks in what seems to be a circle, but it's actually what most of us go through on a regular basis. And finally, towards the end of chapter 7, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Been there, done that. I don't know. Again, it's hard to comprehend and understand why God did this to begin with. Why would he want to deliver us from this wretched state that we're in? Well, we know because of John 3.16, he loves us. But we see here that Paul recognizes his condition, his condition for condemnation, and he says, who will deliver me? Turn to Romans chapter 8 as we finish here. I want us to read this together. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, so here's the guy that just said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we're talking about condemnation. Christ was talking about condemnation in our verses here in John. And Paul writes in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Walking according to the flesh leads to sin and death or condemnation. Walking according to the Spirit makes us free or no condemnation. When we accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we receive His Holy Spirit to help us walk in Him. We talked about this last week, where later in the book of John, Christ dies on the cross, he's resurrected from the dead, he comes back, and he has this moment with his disciples when he says, receive my Holy Spirit, and he breathes into them. So they now have the Holy Spirit of God residing in them, living in them, as we have as well. When we come to the Lord, when we believe that he died for our sins, and we accept That sacrifice that He made for us, God gives us His Holy Spirit to live in us. And it's only by accepting Christ that we can receive His Spirit. And it's only by receiving His Spirit that we can actually walk according to the Spirit, as it says in these verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So Jesus is talking with impacting the life of Nicodemus. You you remember Nicodemus? (laughs) We were talking about him earlier and we looked at him last week. What do you think Nicodemus decided? Well, We looked at a couple verses last week that gave us further evidence in the life of Nicodemus that would actually indicate to us that he became a follower of Christ. So something got through there. It was either during this time that Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, or over time. But Nicodemus, I believe, is someone that we can be assured of that we'll get to sit down and talk with when we get to heaven. You know, we can... Nicodemus, what's up, man? Why didn't you not get it? (laughs) You know, it was right there. And I believe Nicodemus would say to us, you know what? I tried. I didn't have God's Holy Spirit to help me understand he was speaking in a way that was strange to me because I didn't have his Holy Spirit uh, to give me understanding. Yeah, you know, we're right there with you, Nick. We, uh, we went through the same thing. Before we received God's Holy Spirit, before we accepted Christ as our Savior, we lacked understanding. So I believe that Nicodemus chose to walk according to the Spirit. We see that in, in those verses later in John. In no condemnation and non perishable, right? In Nicodemus' life, just like ours, if we have relationship with him. Amen?